Howdy. Joining me today to run down our top movies of the decade is Logan Denning, my co-host on my History and Film podcast. We got a little long-winded, so I'm going to split this up into two parts. Enjoy. down our favorite slash best slash however you quantify it movies of the decade we have not reviewed these lists with each other at all so i'm really excited to see what you have and what overlap we may have just kind of stumbled upon when you have a whole decade worth of movies my first question would be what was your criteria when coming up with your list so i made this list mostly as a list of my favorite movies okay I am very much aware that there are going to be movies on this list that are not the best, in right. air quotes, best movie of the of the decade. Some of them, not even the best movie of that year. Right. But they're my favorites. So the one, you know, uh, a, a big factor is rewatchability. Like, how often do I find myself going back to this movie? Okay. Um, you know, cultural importance, obviously... Uh, the, the actual technical filmmaking, you know, the cinematography, writing, directing, all that stuff, important. But th- probably the biggest thing was was how often do I find myself going back to this movie? And after looking back on this decade of movies, are, are these these are the movies that I still enjoy the most? OK, and that's fair. And I and I definitely do. I feel like I don't have a hard and fast thing. It's more of just it's a hybrid of favorite slash quote-unquote best which again is subjective so it's always kind of weird to say it as a objective attribute and and then there's you get into the whole kind of in between of if you had to start eliminating movies from existence what were the last ones of the last decade left standing but that ends up being a different criteria than maybe just your own personal things and right i think it's ultimately a a hybrid yeah and there's movies on here that I, I know for a fact we will not have overlap on. Um, there, there are some movies on here that you probably don't expect to to see on um, top, top of the decade. However, uh, I will say that I think at least my number one, I can make a good case that it is the best movie of the decade. Okay. Okay. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to disagreeing, even though I don't know what it is yet. We'll see when we get there. So, and I, I did a top twenty, but we'll just start. We'll, we'll just consider my top twenty a top ten. So we're kind of doing the same thing here, and we'll just go back and forth. What I want to do though is, if one of us mentions a movie, as we kind of do, counting down from ten to one, if yeah. the other person has it higher, just uh-huh. say I have it higher, and then we'll talk to it when it comes up on the person who is ranked it higher. Okay. I'll actually go ahead. Usually, so we'll start with me so we can end with you because I I feel selfish always doing it the other way. Sorry, Cody, if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my number 10, and this is one I'm already kind of feeling, oh, not guilty about, but like I feel like it has to be a recency bias situation because it was a 2019 movie. That definitely happened for me anyway. And I was like, ah, like recency bias. Ah, ah. But you know what? I'm making this list right now. And right now, this is where it falls. So absolutely. Right. Unless you're going to you know, remake this list from a decade from now, it'll look different. And and I honestly, I, if I have the same list 10 years from now, I didn't grow at all as a person. So oh, well said. Well said. OK, so <laughs> my number 10 is Jojo Rabbit. Okay, uh, not not on my list. Okay, that's not fine. on my list. And again, I talked about it on my podcast with Cody, so I don't need to necessarily rehash it in great detail. Is it one you've seen? I have seen it, and I I really liked it. I I really like Taika Waititi, uh, his work in general, and it was such an unexpected movie for me. Like I didn't, I was like a little kid, like comedy movie, but like his imaginary friend is Hitler. Like what an <laughs> insane concept. Absolutely. And a big thing for me in picking my best and favorite movies is innovation. I'm going to give a lot of points to a movie that I can say I've never seen that before or anything like that before. And but then also it has to be good. So, again, this is a Oscar nominated movie. I think he won for best adapted screenplay based on a book that apparently is not comedic at all it's a serious book about like yeah. youth and he turns it into this farcical yet also heartfelt 
it just worked for me on so many levels. I've, I've said before that it's the one where I was still literally laughing and literally tearing up on my way to the car having left the theater. And I yes. can't think of another movie that's impacted me like in that there specific are, way. There are scenes in that movie that are absolutely hilarious. Like the scene where the Gestapo comes over and everyone's all Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler to like everyone. Each person <laughs> does it to each other person. Yes. Like that stuff's hilarious. But then... And spoiler alert uh, for Jojo Rabbit, but when he like the absolute gut punch that you get when he when you just see the feet of his mom. Oh my god! At the gals, like yeah, that yeah. that was one of the one of the most gut punch moments of the whole year, I think. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. and to and to have that you know juxtaposition where you have like the silly stuff, you know, or like the like the little the little kids like homemade uniform, like that's hilarious, um, but. Yeah, it's the the juxtaposition between those two is is what I think you know makes that movie stand yes, out. Yes, in the in the perfect marriage of the the humorous and the uh, no, not sentimental in a in a cloying way, but sentimentality. Um, and I actually my, my my actually only dig ironically is Scarlett Johansson. And now I say that she is great in the movie. It's almost through no fault of her own. It's just. I was just hyper aware that this was American actress Scarlett Johansson as yeah. opposed to feeling like I was lost in the world of Jojo Rabbit and here's the person playing his mom and this is Jojo's mother. I'm like, oh, it, it's kind of like when Tom Cruise is in a movie. It's just this is this is Scarlett Johansson right. doing a German accent, earning her Oscar nomination. But for me, it just uh, was a little, uh, oh, distracting and took me out of the movie, I guess I would say, even though yeah. she was fine. I think I think I would have cast someone different. So it wouldn't be as much of a distraction from everything else that was perfect. Yeah. On the the flip side of that coin, though, uh, something that I thought was going to be distracting, uh, Taika Waititi as Adolf Hitler, I thought was, I was like, all right, this is going to pull me out. Like every time I see him, I'm like, okay, that's Taika Waititi at a Hitler stash. But it, it doesn't. No, he right, actually right. kills that role. Right. So, okay. What was your number 10? All right. So my number 10 is a 2018 movie. Written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen that we talked about last time I was on the podcast, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Hey, excellent <laughs> choice. I did I did consider it. I don't think I had it in my it wasn't in my top twenty, but again, it's it's splitting hairs. I absolutely loved it and I definitely considered it, and that is a a great choice that I need to revisit. So this one, it was I debated whether or not I could justify putting it in my top 10 of the decade, but I have come back to this movie so many times. I, you know, am constantly listening to the music from the movie, um, like even on Spotify and stuff. I love the Coen brothers in general, but I, I, I really like um, Westerns as well. And the marriage of the two, it's, yes. it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. Um, I surprised that. Yeah. They need to do more Westerns. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's like, one of the things that I really like about the Coen brothers movies in general is the way that they deal with death where they'll have like death is like it kind of, they, they make death just like another part of life in their movies. And it's like, they'll just like kill characters kind of in these really unceremonious and sometimes undignified ways. Um, like, so in uh, no country for old men, uh, Josh Brolin's character, He's like the main character of the movie, and he's killed off screen at like the beginning of the yes. third act, right? Almost where it's like confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In um, Burn After Reading, there's that scene where Brad Pitt is like he's in the closet, and there's boom, shot in the face. You know, and yeah. this movie is like every single story is all about death. So I I always found that to be an interesting theme in their movies how they handle death, and then the fact that they made a movie that was all about it. Um, and you know, which we talked about last time I was on, but you know how it starts off, you know, light and kind of happy yes, and jovial and the dude dies and he immediately becomes an angel playing a harp. And then all the way until the very end, uh, it gets darker both literally and figuratively as, as you go along, um, until it's, you know, the, the, those three people in the stagecoach being taken to the underworld. But yeah, I, I really, really like this movie. And this reminds me of another thing, I, you know, listening to other best of the decade lists and stuff and or best movies of all time lists. And they talk about how 
basically you need time to figure out where movies ultimately fit in the you know all-time lists and we can still though have those conversations about anticipating anyway what i'm saying is I feel like Buster Scruggs was a little underrated because it's kind of this anthology film and was a Netflix It was direct release. to Netflix, yep. Yes, so I feel like, though, man, I just, this is going to be one I really do feel like people will keep revisiting uh, decades to come. And, you know, a great film student movie or film school movie and just, it, there's just so so many neat things and it's, Oh man, I wanted so much. I was disappointed though because I love Buster Scruggs in the first segment so much. I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. that's all we get from it." Like their stuff was still good, but I just wanted I wanted more Buster Scruggs. Like that was such a neat, neat character where sure. the happy go lucky cutthroat is, I guess you would say. And yeah, um, no, gr- great choice. I, I love yep. that one a lot. So uh, Oscars wise, uh, it got nominated for three um, best adapted screenplay, um, which Black Klansman won that year. So okay. I mean, understandable. Right, right. Um, it got nominated for costume design, and then it also got nominated for uh, best original song, which uh, the song from the movie "When a Cowboy Trades the Spurs for Wings" is my favorite song in the movie. Yeah. However, the song that won best original song for in for the 2018 Oscars was Shallow from A Star Is Born. Ooh. And so, listen, I know that Cody Geefer is going to be upset <laughs> when I say this, but I cannot stand that song. Really? Oh, I'm even kind I of upset. so obnoxious. It was, it's so overplayed. I, I can't stand listening to that song anymore. So, um, sorry, Cody. Uh, I know that, that you really like that movie and that song, but I, I think, honestly, I think that Buster, Buster Scruggs got snubbed for that Oscar this, uh, in 2018. Um, I can get behind maybe the overplayed side of it, but I thought that was the best scene in the movie when she comes on stage. Isn't that the first song they do together? And like that's kind yeah, of her so coming it, out song. That is just oh, the I get chills. Scene, the scene in the movie is okay. is fine. It's okay. good, but the song itself I can't stand. Okay, and okay. that's kind of like my big. Which we're you know we could talk about a Star Wars board <laughs> if you have it on your list later. I don't. In that, <laughs> I don't either. Uh, in in that movie, this like you know. That's the most compelling, the most chill scene in the whole movie, and it's like 20 minutes in, and then the rest of the movie just does not live up to that scene. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, we just, we just, we just lost Cody. Um, <laughs> so um, actually, let's. Uh, I'm gonna backtrack one movie here too. Let's make sure we do the Rotten Tomatoes here as we go. So, okay, JoJo is a disappointing 79% on the critic side, and that's, I, that I think it's really low. Yeah, I know. And now it's 94 on the audience. And I usually I tend to side with the lower of the two, but here's what I'm going to side with the audience. And I feel like though it's the irreverence, and I feel like some critics may have just been just felt like it was poor taste, maybe uh, you know, like making light of yes, Nazis, basically. yes, yeah. I think okay. so. I, I saw so that would be my guess on some of the the negativity there. And Which I, I guess I can kind of see that, but the fact that the Nazis are the punchlines to all of those jokes, I know, is why I think that it's okay. Um, or it's more just people, honestly, it's just more people who just, it doesn't work for them. It just, it didn't, the whole sense of the, the, the humor, they just didn't get. So it's more of that. So yeah, if I guess if, if it, it's so specific, I guess if it doesn't work for you, then you're not going to like it. And it worked for me. Um, and then on Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That one is kind of the reverse. That's a 91% on the critic side, 77% on the audience side. And, and that split I would attribute to the audiences just not really getting behind the, well, one, maybe the anthology thing, or two, just the thematic yep. elements as they kind of get darker and darker and kind of more the hit or miss. Whereas the critics, I think more on what we were talking about is, no, this could be an all-time classic that people keep coming yeah. back to in the future. So, And it's Buster Scruggs is not like a... like. I'm going to watch this and have fun and like eat my popcorn and really enjoy myself. Right. Like, it's more it's of a kind poem. of a chore, yeah. honestly, yes. to watch. Okay. But. but it just kind of well suited to maybe watching in pieces if you, if you needed to for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My number nine is Ex Machina, which was my number okay. one from 2015. I have that higher on my list. Okay. So let's go to your number nine. All right. So my number nine is a 2010 movie. Directed by Edgar Wright and written by Edgar Wright and Michael Bacall, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Oh, okay. Which, you know what? I've only seen the one time, 
but I always come back to it as an as an example because people will talk about. I, I just love. The, of course, we probably talked about this back when you were in high school. But the idea that well, if if in movies people can randomly burst out into song and that's okay, why isn't it randomly bursting out into video game style fighting equally yes. okay? Yes, and, and that's that's <laughs> I think why that's I really love the uh, the visual aesthetic in this movie. Um, you know the the video game thing. Um, I'm also a huge Edgar Wright fan. I love his uh, editing style mm. um, and his the the visual comedy um, that he has in his movies. I I think is unparalleled. Um, so you know, like Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, those are all classics in in my book. But um, yeah, I, I really really enjoyed um, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It's uh it's not for everybody. I know for a fact that my wife actually dislikes this movie she she does not like it at all hates it uh when i told her that i was putting it on the list uh she she couldn't believe it <laughs> she just walks um, out the room yeah yeah i i really like the uh the visuals both the comedy and the you know the arcade game fighting game uh aesthetic and this movie which you don't really realize it um, until you go back and watch it. But this movie has a pretty stacked cast. I was just going to bring all, that up. Yep. It's all like people, you know, from before they got famous. So you, like Chris Evans is in this movie, Anna Kendrick, Brie Larson, uh, Aubrey Plaza, uh, you know, and then, uh, you know, you have like Michael, Sarah, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead as the, as the main characters. But yeah, going back, it's like, oh yeah, that's what I forgot. You know, Anna Kendrick is like his sister in this movie. She has like, you know, four scenes. That's crazy. Maybe five minutes of screen time, and now she's this huge star. But um, and this one, I tell you what, I, I saw it once, probably, you know, I wasn't even in the theater. It was on, you know, DVD right after it came out on DVD, and I haven't revisited it. So I'm gonna have to give that one another watch. I just I remember enjoying it. I remember appreciating its cleverness, but I again, I I think at the time maybe I just thought that it was maybe a one trick pony and that like it did this thing that was unique and then nothing beyond that necessarily left an impact on me. But I definitely need to revisit it. Rotten Tomato scores eighty two percent on the critic side, eighty four audience, so pretty pretty similar there. Yeah, um, Oscar wise, uh, it didn't get any nominations, um, so it didn't win anything. Um, it's supposedly it was shortlisted for visual effects for a visual effects nomination that year, which I could definitely see because of the, mm, um, mm-hmm. the fight scenes, um, and the, you know, the, the whole like fighting arcade game aesthetic. Uh, but <laughs> inception came out in 2010 as well, which won the Oscar oh, for best yeah, visual effects. So that's rough. like, that's yeah, rough. I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. But that's one of those things like, you know, that comes out one year left or right maybe it probably gets nominated maybe even wins right but you know right. it, it comes out the same year as inception and uh yeah <laughs> okay my number eight is 12 years a slave okay that was in my in my honorable mentions okay. um, but i didn't have it on my top 10 so here now it's interesting so when i first was putting together my list but it's basically what i kind of went back and forth so i have my best of the decade sorry my best of the year list that i was basically using as a reference and i wanted to rewatch as many as possible so i kind of did a rough list of maybe where i thought things would fall based on my memories of you know having seen them at the time most of them i'd only seen the one time and I wanted a lot of things to be eligible. I wanted to try to rewatch most of the list. I think I did rewatch everything that's in the top 10 here. And unless it came out like last year, like I only saw JoJo the once. Um, anyway, so I kind of just said, well, I kind of had to trust my past self and say, well, if I had these as one and two and three in 2015, well, then I'm probably not going to make number seven leapfrog them necessarily, if that makes sense. Okay. So I kind of had to you know, trust those order and then things you kind of just get shuffled in. Anyway, but when I did my first initial rough pass, the movie I had earmarked for number one was 12 Years a Slave. And upon rewatching, I dropped it, but still consider it one of the best movies of the decade. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see that. I, I didn't have it on my actual list, and I think it was handicapped due to the fact that I only watched it once. And I think that was in... It came out in 2012 or 2013. Yeah, 13, yeah. So I, I saw it when it came out, and that was the last time that I saw it. Okay. Um, 
Mostly because it's just a really hard movie to watch. Yes, I sat down to rewatch it knowing that, like, I'm going to (laughs) cry. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, but again, rewatching it is actually what hurt it for me, which I hate to say because I do consider it one of the best movies of the decade. And it's such an important movie and an impactful movie. Yep. And And it still hit me hard the second time. What, where the reason I dropped it is uh, the emotional impact was still there, but the thought that I couldn't shake once it entered my head on the second rewatching is was it Brad Pitt White Jesus? Um, not well. De- oh, de- are, are you definitely you know that's what uh, I usually hear is like people's main complaint about the movie. But anyways, sorry to interrupt. No, uh, definitely problematic. We can get into that, but it was more that from a filmmaking standpoint, I was like, oh wait. This isn't actually a great script overall, maybe. Or, I mean, it's still, you know, making it from his own biography and all that is an accomplishment. But, like, the kind of movies I tend to like are maybe ones with more creative and imaginative plots. Or it was more just, I hate to call it torture porn as far as, like, just some, you know, horror movie or something. But it was basically, right. it, it, was, it was more just, it was just the one note of, yeah, slavery was horrible and sucked and here's a very intimate look at someone living through that experience and that is important to watch and it was extremely well acted and there's a reason I have it on my list but I dropped it because I felt like that was that was all there is to it not that that's yeah. not a lot but as far as thematically even it was just like maybe a little too one note so yeah. again I'm trying to reason it's not number 1 for me but I still have it at right. number 8 for the entire decade <laughs> Yes. Because it's yeah, that yeah. Uh, breathtaking. Just uh... I think, uh, so th- this is probably going to come up a couple more times, but something that I was thinking as I was re-watching a lot of these movies and then trying ranking them is, you know, a-, a lot of these movies, like, they're you know, they're really good. Obviously, they made my top ten list of the decade. Um, but some of them have, they'll have, like, a scene. And it's like, that scene is definitely one of the best 10 scenes in the uh, decade. Yes. Maybe yes. one of the best scenes that I've, you know, from movies of the last 50 years, like they're, you know, some, some big time heavy hitters. Yes. Um, and one of the ones that I thought about was in 12 years of slave, the scene where he's hanging from the tree yep. and he's got his feet yep. dangling on the ground. And then just life just goes yep. on behind him. Everyone just comes out and they're just going about their day. And it's like that, you know, again, the juxtaposition between everyone else, like this is a normal day. I'm just doing what I normally do, going and, you know, taking care of the plantation. And he is, you know, fighting for his life. And everyone else is just not not oblivious. I mean, obviously, they're standing right there, but there's nothing they can do about it. And they know that if they try and do anything about it, they're going to get worse, probably. Uh, That, yeah, that that's one of the I think the most gut punch uh impactful scenes and definitely just, just from the like, last decade yeah. if more and yeah and just uh, an I- iconic scene and you, you definitely like it takes your breath away especially seeing it in the theater i thought even more so on, on the yeah. small screen the rewatch and having that scene so kind of fused into my mind singed into my mind yep. it didn't necessarily hit as hard for me what, what hit as hard though was the reunion with his family yeah, and just the whole yep. idea of basically hitting fast forward on your when you leave, you have little kids, and then when you come home twelve years later, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's called Twelve Years a Slave. You, you handed your grandkid, and it's yeah. just like, oh, I'm getting chills just just thinking about yep. that. And the well, and, and the thing about well, the thing about the hanging thing too is it's a wide shot and it's not cut, and there's mm, there's no true. there's no editing. It's yep. just he, this is it, this yep. and this happened every day. For yeah, yep. hundreds of years, right? Yeah, that's yeah, disgusting. Um, so, quick note on the Brad Pitt thing. So, yes, obviously a a trope that is you know not playing, it's not aging well. Is the idea of the white savior with any movie dealing with minority oppression? And I guess with, with this one though, it's like, well, one, it's like. If that's what happened, I guess I don't know. I don't know how else you deal with it. Then you you do yeah. change the story. I I don't know how else he was going to get out. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, the realities of it. Unless you're going to completely change it to where he just escapes with the help of other other slaves, or you know, like a Harriet Tubman type character. But that's not what happened to this guy. So right. And I don't I I don't know about the historical accuracy of, right. and I don't of that 
situation or of uh, of Brad Pitt's character. Um, I just know that a lot of uh, critics they will you know they'll cite that as one of the one of their issues with the movie Twelve Years a Slave. Okay. Now you could maybe uh, take it a different angle and say Brad Pitt as one of the producers in the movie shoehorning himself into this role is maybe... And I think that's the biggest thing, okay. is that they're like, not necessarily that his character, you know, or, you know, the, the fact that that's in there, um, which, you know, that that it's in itself is is one of their issues. But, the uh, yeah, the, the other thing, and probably the bigger thing, is the fact that, okay. yeah, Brad Pitt as a producer was like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this guy. Like, just so everyone knows, I'm, I'm not... Racist. Almost kind of like he's patting himself on the back in a weird way. And it, and it's similar to yeah. what I said with Scarlet being in JoJo, where he does stand out like a sore thumb at that point of the movie because he's so famous. Right. Right. So, yes, it w- did win Best Picture in, for movies of 2013. It, oh, that was uh, Lupita Nyong'o's uh, coming out film. That, so she won yep. Best Supporting Actress and yep. you know was you know famously in us and his Maz Kanata in the new Star Wars movies and and then the other one it won was for best adapted screenplay of course adapted from the actual biography written by uh, Solomon uh, Northrup and but then it was nominated for an additional 6 and that's where you get uh, Chiwetel was was nominated but didn't win actually I'm going to have to look up and see who beat him uh, Michael Fassbender also nominated he is Evil, yes. capital E, evil. But, but, in that and movie. an amazing, amazing performance there. Yes. Yep. So uh, McConaughey won for Dallas Buyers Club that year, and man, I might have to give the nod to Chiwetel over over that. I, I, yeah. I, but, Although that was like the McConaughey, that was like peak. Yes. Yes. Matthew McConaughey coming back, and then Jared Leto's who beat uh, Fastbender out. Also yeah. for Dallas Spires Club. So interesting. Okay. Yep. Good film. What is your number eight? So my number eight is a 2017 movie written and directed by Jordan Peele. Get out. Okay. Okay. Do you have this, do you have that song on your list? No. So it didn't even make my top 10 of the year when it came out. But what? That's <laughs> that is super surprising that, to me. That, it's more of a I don't do horror kind of things, and uh, and and again, I also though I made the mistake too of I did not see it like with the crowd in the theater. I saw it by my health self at home, much after the fact, with the hype built up through the roof, and okay. so it just. And I, I was definitely it spoiled appreci- for you when you when you went and saw it, or did, were you going in at least fresh? You just no, knew that I know I, I I was going in not knowing anything, but it's just not my kind of movie. It's like we talked about with the reviews on Jojo Rabbit being surprisingly low on the critic side. If it doesn't mm. work for you, it doesn't work for you. This movie's just not for me. I appreciate what they were going for, and I do. This isn't necessarily a spoiler alert, but uh. I do consider it like the best all time build up to an I told you so joke. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah. But no, I just I just don't I just don't enjoy watching movies like this, even if they are important or so for me the rewatchability score you mentioned uh-huh. is insanely low. I just can't revisit okay. these types See, of movies. So it's it's the opposite for me. No, right. I get that. It's this just is a me. movie. Where when you go back and rewatch it, knowing what you know from watching mm. it the first time, you notice little things okay. that characters will do and say, like the um, grandpa being in the black guy's body early on makes more sense. And yeah, yep, yeah, yeah. Or, or like uh, when they're when they're uh, like the very first scene of the movie when they're driving, they hit the deer, and the cop comes and mm. helps them. And her being uh, a sociopath about it, right? Well, and and she well no because she she tells the cop because the cop's like, hey, I need to see your guys' IDs, and he, so she gives them her license and he says i need to see his id and she says no you don't he wasn't driving and it when you're watching it the first time you're like oh they're you know commenting on you know police interacting with african americans and you know um and he's you know he's like no it's cool like he's just going along with it but she's like you know kind of trying to basically white savior him but then when you go back and rewatch it you're noticing oh no she's not doing that because she you know doesn't she, because she's like trying to stand she's not up being woke yeah she doesn't want a paper trail that he was there with her near their house because that way when he goes missing later 
that would right. be like a thing that people could use to come and find them. Interesting. So little stuff like that, um, that when you go back and, and rewatch it, and there's like, there's all kinds of like alternate readings on different scenes and, you know, people read into different conversations in different ways. But yeah, and, and this is a, this was a, uh, directorial debut for Jordan Peele, um, yes. who was known for, uh, comedy until, you know, th- obviously he's made this and us, which are both like horror thriller suspense movies. Um, but before that he was, you know, comedian, he on, on key and peel, um, which I was a big fan of. But when I heard that this movie was coming out, I was like, Oh, right. Written and directed by Jordan Peele, but it's a horror movie. I was like, Oh, this is no, right. kind of weird. Um, but no, it was, it was awesome. And then, you know, obviously the, uh, thematically with the exploration of like a, like a white liberal racism. Oh uh, yes. And the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the glorification of African-Americans as just as racist as, you know, right. of course they end up cause it's a dehumanization that occurs within their way of glorifying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Fetish, fetish, fetishization. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Nice. Nice. <laughs> and edit it. So it made it sound like I could say that word. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. <laughs> but yeah. Awesome movie. Uh, you know, maybe not for everybody if you're if you're not into horror movies. Uh, but it's really it's it's really not that scary. Like it's not it's not no, like it's a suspense. It's, like it's, it's, it's a thriller, like a hostel it's, or something. It's, it's more it's, of a thriller. Yeah, it is. It's more of a suspense thriller movie. Um, you know, there, there are jump scares and stuff, um, right. but it's it's really not awful. It's not particularly uh, gory or anything. Right. Yeah. But um, so yeah. So uh, Oscar wise, it got uh, four nominations. It won for Best Original Screenplay, which, rightly so, uh, the twists and turns in that movie are uh, pretty much unparalleled. Um, and this uh, was, so Jordan Peele, obviously this is his first Oscar as a writer, but he was the first black person to win Best Original Screenplay. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. In 2017. Right. Well, it's 2018 was the Oscars, but right, yeah. Right, for the, right. for the, yeah. And then it uh, it also got nominated for Best Picture and Best Director, um, which The Shape of Water won both of those that year, um, which I, I I don't know about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, Daniel Kaluuya got uh, nominated for Best Actor, uh, which Gary Oldman won that year for Darkest Hour when he played uh, Winston Churchill. Um, so that's, again, that's one of those. It's like, all right, yeah, like I can see that. But yeah, get out. Awesome movie. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 98% on the critic side, which would be the highest on our list so far. And actually, honestly, it's going to be hard to beat. You don't yep. see many at 98%. And then an audience at an 86, which is still very high. And that's enough of a split, though. A 12% split. Is that just enough of me's out there that are, I don't know, that's bizarre. Or is it the other side where it's, uh, it's the, it's the racist vote. I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say it's a racist thing, but it, it definitely it wasn't advertised that way. So mm. maybe if you go in not expecting okay. to have that be like the major theme of the movie, even if obviously even if if you're not racist, maybe just the fact that like people might think that they're being quote unquote preached to. Okay, and they don't like that. I don't know. That's and, just speculation, though. And I, I would I say, no too, idea. I would argue there might be an inevitability of anything that does well at the box office being able to get over a 90 on the audience score because people are going to go see it because of its popularity who yeah. are going to like it versus right. a more kind of unheralded movie that kind of hits its you know niche on video later is only going to be seen by the people who seek it out and like it. And, and right. so, so that might be a... Yeah, and it, it might be another thing, you know, because of the fact that it's a horror movie. Some people might have gone to see it like, oh, I heard this is a good horror movie. Expecting to just get the crap scared out of them for two hours, oh, you know, yep, and yep. and then they go and they see this like, OK, that really wasn't that scary, but right. it's it's not supposed to be. But right. Yeah. OK, my number seven is Boyhood. OK, uh, yeah, not not on my list. But I do really like that movie. And this is one kind of maybe the opposite of 12 Years a Slave in the sense that now it was my number one of the year for 2014. And I kind of expected it to fall. And I, honestly, so be, because so for those who don't know, he filmed it over the course of about 12 years following this actual the same kid from he's like six to 18. But it's 
but it was still a movie. So the kid was playing the same character for all 12 of those years, and they kind of wrote the script on the fly. So there's no real overarching plot to it. And at the time, I kind of just saw it as this huge cinematic achievement. And again, I give points for originality. So the idea of a movie filmed kind of in real time over the course of 12 years where the actors age, not through makeup, through actual aging, but it's still telling the story of this family. I thought maybe that wouldn't stand up as well on a repeated viewing. That I, that I already kind of played out. I'd seen how they did that. And no, I tell you, this had a bigger emotional impact on me the second time around, having not seen it for five years. And I feel like I was tearing up in more places. And I just, this is more of a, and actually I think the title, Boyhood, is even apt because it calls to mind something that Tolstoy might have written. Because I think Tolstoy literally wrote a story called Boyhood and Childhood and various stories like that that Tolstoy did. But it's just this it's philosophical both within the conversations that the characters have, but then also through the specific things you see him going through. It's, it's impossible not to see yourself in aspects of this film. And I think this is, Oh, it kind of just, I hate to use the phrase that we've talked about before, but just of transcending movies and just, Mm -hmm. this is more than just a story or a film. It's like, this is the ultimate kind of slice of life tale that just kind of puts puts humanity, you know, under the microscope, but it's also yeah. engaging and it has a really long runtime that absolutely flies by. So I was I was hesitant to I mean, sit down and rewatch it like I said. I was like, "Oh, it's going to be a bit of a bit of a slog to get through. It's it's 2 hours and 45 minutes. I could have watched it for another couple hours. I just I want to see what's next. I I never wanted to leave the world of uh the kid here and just and Patricia Arquette won the Oscar for playing his mom, mm-hmm. and it was nominated for five others. Ethan Hawke, Linklater for directing, which actually might be his only director nomination, uh, was nominated for Best Picture. I think it lost to Birdman. Yeah, Birdman. I don't know. I absolutely love it, and I think it held up better the second time. Don't be intimidated by the runtime. I don't. I. I think. But again, I think it just speaks to me too. I. I could definitely see this being the movie. A movie that some people are like, yeah, it's too long. Or, yeah, I just didn't really click with it. But for me, it just, there you go. Not far behind Get Out at 97% on the critic side to 80% on the audience side. So here's when I'm on the critic side for sure. I I think it's freaking amazing. And you were talking about, um, when we were talking about criteria for the list, you were talking about, you know, a, a movie that has some sort of like, you know, way like outside the box creative element mm, to it. Mm-hmm. And this is, I mean, this really is kind of like the prime example of that. Like this really, it's more than a movie. It's like a 12 year long, crazy, huge art project. I don't know. It's, no, it, right. it is, it, it, I mean, just to, from a production standpoint, like there's so many things that could have gone wrong. Like, and probably should have. <laughs> uh, yeah. And probably should have, which I had heard. I've heard uh, like rumors, and I don't know if this is true at all. So you know, lawyers of uh, of Linkletter, <laughs> if you're out there, you know, please don't sue us. Um, but I had heard that he had even like asked Patricia Arquette, like, "Hey, please don't get like any plastic surgery or any like work mm. done because I can't have you looking. I, I need you to age. Like, you need to look 12 years older by the time we're done with this." Huh. Which for a working actress, man, especially one that's that age, like that, that's like a potentially big could, ask. Could yeah. be potentially a big commitment. I don't know anything about Patricia Arquette and how she personally feels about getting plastic surgery, but that could be a, a big commitment. Like, okay, because of this one project, like I'm not going to do that because I need to make sure that the, you know, the visual integrity of the project stands up 12 years from now. And yeah, absolutely. And then and I had not heard that. That's interesting. I, I wouldn't be surprised either way, I guess. And yeah, Ethan Hawke is amazing in it as well. And quick note on Linklater himself, because this guy is one of my favorite directors who most people have not heard of. I would say his most famous, well, again, it's, it's depends on how you, it depends on which circles you run in. So this is the guy who directed School of Rock and the remake of I, Bad News Bears. I was going to say, that's, that's probably his most famous movie. Right, but that's not who he is. So he got started right. back in like the... The indie movie, indie indie scene in like the late '80s, early '90s, kind of long. He's probably like oh, right about the same time as like a Steven Soderbergh. And his first mm-hmm. big, his kind of his quote unquote breakthrough movie is a film called Slacker that he filmed on the streets of Austin with no real protagonist, and he would literally just like, well, I mean, they were all actors, but he would he would follow say one character 
you know, walking along the street with a person into a coffee shop, and then the camera would leave that person's table, go over to the next table, listen to that conversation, then follow those people out of the place and just basically so there was no protagonist it was just the camera was like the protagonist going along the streets of austin and meeting all these interesting characters and uh philosophy is a big part of what link later does and his his characters will have these long long thought-provoking conversations that i just absolutely love before sunrise uh, does i was gonna say that's like basically the the sunrise trilogy that's basically all those movies are it's like three movies of just two people talking about (laughs) stuff yes (laughs) for a few hours and then he had what's the what's the movie that's like the the cell shading kind of waking life that one yeah yeah yeah. yes it's basically like the whole it's not even a movie it's more like it's just like you're watching a dream but then it's all this philosophical stuff um obviously another one of his more popular films is Dazed and Confused. And yeah. and then uh, one that most people have never even heard of is a movie called Tape that does have Ethan Hawke in it as well. And the whole movie, and it's, it's, only, it's only like 80 minutes, but the entire thing is in a hotel room with three actors. The entire film. And it's captivating because it's Linklater dialogue. This guy yeah. is so, so underrated. I say he's now an Oscar-nominated director and writer and everything, but... He is super underrated. You got to check out this guy's stuff. I absolutely love Richard Linklater, and Boyhood is my number seven movie of the decade. Awesome. Okay, so your number seven. All right, so my number seven is a 2019 movie. Uh, so again, I know it's 2019, number seven for the decade. Might be a little bit high, but hey, this is I'm making the list right now. Yep. Uh, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, uh, Knives Out. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah, I uh, dug that one a lot. It was it was high on my list for 2019, but I didn't put it on my decade list. So <laughs> I know that because we had talked we had talked about our favorite movies of 2019 maybe a couple months ago, and I think I had Knives Out at like number three or number four. But it has it. I've watched it like three more times since okay. then, and it has grown on me so. It's such a good movie. I I love it so much. I love uh, the performances in it. Uh, I love obviously the writing. Uh, Ryan Johnson is a master. Um, I'm I'm a really big Ryan Johnson fan. Uh, I think he's one of the best directors working today. And just the way that it takes this, you go in thinking, oh, murder mystery, sweet. I've seen one of these before. It's probably going to be all right. Maybe there'll be a little twist. I don't know. And then like. 15 minutes in you're like okay this is exactly how the murder happened and you're like uh okay interesting what's the movie gonna be about and i mean i you know the movie is about uh how all of the little character choices and and the the family dynamic and everything leading up to this murder like that's the interesting stuff um, and then it turns out that it's, it, it was actually a mystery. It didn't happen the way that you think it did the whole time. But, man, it is, it's awesome. There's, a, uh, there's a, a YouTube video. I don't know what channel, but it's um, a video of Ryan Johnson talking about how, like, how he shot. It was one specific scene in the movie. Um, it's the, you've seen Knives Out, I assume. Uh, yes, but just, just the once. And I definitely need okay, to see it so, again. So this the scene where uh, Chris Evans' character comes in, and everyone in the family is basically is like berating him, and he's they're eating the little cookies. It's maybe like a five minute scene, but just the amount of thought and effort and finesse that Ryan Johnson put into that scene, and he goes through the whole thing talking about like here's why I shot this this way, and here's why I shot this this way, and here, you know, we had to have the lighting like this, and we had to have these people say this at these times, and, I mean, that, it's it's almost an innocuous scene in the movie, because it's just people talking, it's nothing crazy, but it really just goes to show how talented Ryan Johnson is, and I think that this is going to be one of those movies that 25, 30, 50 years from now is going to be looked back on as a classic uh, a classic film, a classic mystery movie, the way that it turns the like Agatha Christie type murder mystery on its head. I, I can't say enough good things about this movie. It it has definitely 
transformed itself into my favorite movie of uh, 2019. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that's that's my number seven. And I I absolutely loved it. It's one of those ones where the moment it was done, I wanted to just like to stay in the theater theater and watch it a second time. And I, I have not seen it a second time yet. And and I don't have a good excuse other than this. I mean, I'm always watching something, so I I definitely need to prioritize rewatching it. And to your point about it being an all time classic, I think especially because. Now, they did make a point of putting a lot of more modern and contemporary references in it, but I still think mm-hmm. it's going to be infinitely rewatchable and, and, and fun. I don't I feel like this is going to age well despite some of those contemporary references and that, you know, your grandkids can sit down and watch this movie and be like, that was fun. Like yeah. I, 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 I it's because it is so fun and just these great characters and like you said it's it's so it plays with the audience audience's expectations in a delightful way and uh my mom did say and she she listens to a lot or sorry reads a lot of mysteries mm-hmm. she didn't think it was necessarily as original just because she's like yeah i read stuff like that so like we haven't seen maybe enough mysteries that's like everything's been done i guess already is what i'm saying maybe even this. And, and and when you think about it like after you get done with the movie when you look back on it, it's like okay the actual mystery itself really isn't okay true. that spectacular or game changing it. but it's it's the way that they tell the story and okay. the things that they yeah, gotcha. show you and the things that they you know show you like okay this is how this is and you're like okay so that's something that i know or something that you think you know and then they change some of those things to where then you're not sure about anything that you know and then at the very end all the pieces kind of fall into place um, and it's it's very very satisfying to watch. Um, and you you were talking about all the characters playing off of each other. Uh, this has uh, a pretty stacked cast. Daniel Craig obviously is the main uh, the the detective with the outrageous like foghorn leghorn accent. <laughs> um, which side note, there are uh, rumors. Uh, I guess Ryan Johnson has talked about um, making sequels to this movie. Um, not, not necessarily direct sequels, but like anthology. Uh, following Daniel Craig's character, the detective, um, only he would have a different accent in every movie. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'd heard that they, he might try to make this Daniel Craig character into kind of his Hercule Poirot and have a yeah. series of Knives Out movies. I didn't yeah. hear about the accent thing though. What, yeah, one of the one of the like features of this character was that he's going to have like a different outrageous accent in each movie, which well, I think would be hilarious. I would love that. I actually kind of like that, and Daniel Craig would have a blast with that. And especially, and if anything, it kind of retroactively justifies because I actually didn't like his accent in this film. I found it distracting and and inconsistent. But the idea that maybe it's a affectation. Right. makes that work beautifully then yeah and yeah. and yeah we've we've both been brian johnson fans for a long time a brick i believe is another one of your uh favorites it's it's like my favorite movie of all time yes so yet to be dethroned nice so yeah brick from 2005 is just absolutely amazing i really enjoyed looper and i think he kind of got the shaft with this whole star wars last jedi situation yeah and I I still think if you look at the newer the newer Star Wars movies, the best directed one is Last Jedi. He did his yes. job yes. the best. I do have issues with the script, which he also wrote. There are definitely I definitely have issues with it. But I still think it's the best made movie. And if they had actually yeah. set him up to succeed, and we don't have to go off the whole Star Wars tangent yeah. here. But... I was just I was just gonna say in his defense, they did not plan out the entire exactly. Trilogy. They were winging it movie to movie, um, which I think That's was a, a huge mistake. I think it's yes. the biggest problem with that trilogy. Yep. Um, but yeah. So yes, I I, I look. They were initially talking about him helming his own trilogy of Star Wars movies within the world. I, I don't know if that's been officially pulled. I but, I don't but... I don't I think after uh, Last Jedi they right. kind of said. He, um, and, Maybe not, and and he got screwed because I think if you give him you give him that whole where Ryan Johnson gets to develop this whole arc himself as opposed to just you know JJ saying here's the characters do what you want well what's come yeah. back, what comes after this eh. <laughs> so I, I anyway I could go off on a thirty minute tangent on, on all the Star Wars and JJ and this stuff yes. there but yeah but no Knives Out is amazing. Chris Evans's uh, performance in the movie is really good. Anna de Armas, I think she's really underrated um, as an actress. I think she's going to be in a lot more stuff. Pretty much everything that I've seen her in, I don't think she's been utilized to her full potential yet. Uh, but this movie definitely, you know, it, it has her front and center. She's the she's a protagonist. She does an awesome job. 
Um, Jamie Lee Curtis is great. Michael Shannon's character, I think it's funny because <laughs> Michael Shannon is usually like a really like intimidating, like you know, like General Zod. He's just like forced to be reckoned with, and in this movie, he's like almost like a pathetic kind of loser that nobody really like respects. Which and uh, you know, he has some some pretty funny lines of dialogue. Don Johnson's good in it. Tony Collette's good. Uh, they have this recurring joke where they each say like they'll reference Ana de Armas being from insert Latin American country here, and they're it's everyone is different and everyone is wrong. And well, we never learn where she's actually from, do we? She yes, her and her mom talk about it. Okay, so, so you, you definitely know what is correct, but everyone else is wrong and everyone's answers are different. Like, oh yeah, you're from Peru, you know, or like you're from Venezuela, you know. And they say it and, uh, and they say it confidently every time. And yeah. Yeah. Um Lakeith Stanfield is good in it. Um he's one of the other uh detectives and uh Christopher Plummer, as always, uh kills it. Yeah. And again, that's I again I think that speaks to Ryan Johnson. All of these actors wanted to work with Ryan Johnson. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and Chris Evans kind of just such a great experience for him to follow up Captain America with this just kind of unlikable, snarky guy. Yeah, that's he's basically he's like yeah. every like super like privileged silver spoon like kid that everyone hates, yep. and he really yep. he he plays that role really well actually. So Oscars wise, uh, it just got the one nomination for screenplay, um, which Parasite won. Mm. Um, so you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? Parasite comes out the same year as your movie, even if it's as good <laughs> as Knives Out. Uh, it's still probably going to take it. I was kind of surprised it didn't get any other nominations though, like not even a directing nomination for Ryan Johnson. Yeah, I think that has to do with it being well. One, I wonder if it's <laughs> that Star Wars fallout, but two, I think it's more just the uh, it's lighthearted. They don't reward comedies. Yeah. Yeah, I just, yeah. I And I guess JoJo did get some of the love that Knives Out didn't, but again, it had more serious themes. I didn't cry during Knives Out. Sure. Although, I mean, 2019 was a really good year for movies. And it was a, a really, very really strong year. year. Arguably the strongest year of the decade. I think 50 years from now, when we look back, I think it's going to be looked on like a, you know, a 1999 or a 2007. Right, um, right. I mean, between Knives Out, Parasite, 1917, well, we're gonna to get to other movies. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I'm just, I'm just saying other movies that came out. Oh, right, last right. year that are really good. Right. That are gonna be considered classics for sure. Yeah, I think something like 1917 probably wins most years, and then like it did not. It, and uh, the one, my one last note too, it, and you, just because we've kind of been going all, all over the place, but what you mentioned, I wanted to highlight is how they deal with the information you know within this movie, and just it, it, it never feels forced. You never have like a oh, come on moment in this movie. Like, I can't believe you withheld that information or I can't believe you made me think this when I should have been thinking this. Like, it all works to where each new little sliver you get makes you excited, even if you were wrong before. And it's, it. I think they just deal with you perfectly. It's all earned. Yes. And there's no, like, like deus ex machina, like, oh, so-and-so just happened to be, like, hiding behind the wall when so-and-so just happened to be walking by talking to this person, and they just happened to spill their guts about the whole plan. Like, there's none of that going on. Everything is earned. Everything, like, comes about in a really organic way. Uh, Just a really, really well-done mystery. Absolutely. Okay. My number six is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Okay, uh, not on not on my list. So oh, okay, okay. Let's talk about it. So, and again, this is another one I think I might have thought I would have put higher. Even then, on rewatching it, it quote unquote fell to number six. Um, <laughs> just because same thing. So this is just such a visceral movie that when you know when the hits are coming, that that impact is is just shaved off a little bit. So it doesn't yeah. have the same punch that it did on first viewing. But that said, I still think it is masterful filmmaking and does a spectacular job of things we've already talked about of playing with the audience's expectations and not being what you think it's going to be. Or if you think it's going one way, they're going to take it another way. And just, it has, it deals with this, you know, serious, serious situation, which again, I mean, it's not even a spoiler because it's kind of the premise of the movie is, uh, Frances McDormand's character is, wants justice for her daughter who was raped and killed and there's been no arrests and she's basically using these billboards to call out Woody Harrelson's character who is the town sheriff or head policeman or whatever his exact title is 
and anyway, so it's it's dealing with this dark stuff, but yet has tons of humor. It feels a yeah. lot like a Coen Brothers movie, right yeah. down to the casting of Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand, yep. <laughs> but it, but it is Mark and Madonna who did uh, In Bruges and then Seven Psychopaths, which I actually have not seen. But it's pretty good. Okay, no, and I need I, I, I need like to watch it. it. I don't think I got very much love when it came out, but it is pretty good. That's yeah, it's kind of what I'm saying that it it, it does have decent reviews, but it, you know I haven't seen it. But so. I don't even know what else to say. I it's just a great, great job of introducing these interesting characters into this tough situation. So it's not just yeah, it does it both. So you have this very captivating plot and situation, and then they populate it with unique and original characters, as opposed to just having no one in this feels like a two dimensional character. You know, down to like the kid who runs the ad agency that she buys the billboards yeah. from. He even has his own little story and arc to some extent. And yep. this, and we, the flashbacks, and we see the daughter, and then her son, who's kind of sad for his sister, but embarrassed by what his mother's doing. And then the father is, you know, estranged from the family and, and comes in. And there's these tense, tense moments. I mean, the, the son pulls a knife on the dad, and it's you, you just don't know what's going to happen at any point. And then you think they're going to get some vindication of some kind, and then they twist that again. It becomes a dark in a whole different way. And... I just really, really dig uh, this movie. It was my number two in 2017, I believe. Again, I, I think it falls into the all-time kind of thing. I just, yeah. I, again, I think it's it is more maybe first viewing dependent. But again, I think 30 years from now, anybody watching this movie for the first time is going to be like, "Oh my gosh, that yeah. that was something." And I think it's it's kind of interesting um, that we brought this movie up right after Knives Out because in the way that Knives Out is a really like pieces falling perfectly into place at the very end, you know everything that's happened like it's a super satisfying mystery to watch. This movie is the opposite. You know, so, you know spoiler nothing. Spoiler alert for Three Billboards. Um, you know, if you haven't seen it, watch it and then come back and you know otherwise just like skip ahead thirty seconds or whatever. But at the end of this movie, the crime is not solved. At the end, yep. you have there is no resolution at all. Nope. Um, the case is still open and it's, it's right. that's kind of, the, that's kind of the point is like, you know, it, kind of a life goes on type deal almost, right. but, but the characters grow and change. Right. So yeah. We, but the it, plot doesn't just, go where you, yeah, the plot and the ultimately the resolution and the catharsis doesn't come from the plot plot being resolved. It comes from the characters growing maybe and accepting. Yeah. Yeah. Even their growth is, it's, it's changed. Right, it's, it's changed. Yep. Right. Right. And oh yeah, yeah. fascinating. Which and there, it, I love when movies do that because, like, nine hundred and ninety nine times out of a thousand, you know, the mystery gets solved, the bad guys are vanquished, and the good guys are victorious. But you know, you have movies like this really packing an extra punch at the end when it's like, Hey, you know what? Sometimes life is not perfect. And sometimes crimes go unsolved. Yes. Happens all the time. Yes. Yeah. I think that's very important. So it was nominated for seven Academy Awards winning for Frances McDormand, lead actress and Sam Rockwell, best supporting actor. Uh, Woody Harrelson was also up. It was nominated for best picture. Not best director, which it kind of is shocking. It's a ninety percent on Rotten Tomatoes. To, uh, actually, I forgot to mention Knives Out was a ninety-seven percent. So, okay, it's tied for number two so far with and right behind Get Out with uh, Boyhood. Um, but yeah, so yeah, not much else to say. It's just it, it's kind of a gut punch of a movie if you haven't seen it before, and it's. Not really a thriller. It's more just kind of an emotional drama with lots of humor embedded throughout. And just, I think it's a must, must see. Absolutely. All right. What'd you have for number six? All right. So my number six, uh, 2015 movie written by George Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nico Lathoris, directed by George Miller, a movie that I don't think you actually like very much, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. It, I, I do like it. But so <laughs> yeah, go I, ahead. And so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a stab here, and I'm gonna attempt to explain why I think I like this movie so much, and why you don't like this movie. Well, it's so gonna much. tie into things we've talked about in history and film with the Lawrence of Arabia stuff. Probably yes, probably. So uh, I think that the reason that I also well, I'll, I'll start off by saying I think that the reason you don't like it 
as much as I do is because when you watch a movie, if it if the if the plot and the story is kind of like eh, then you're like, all right, this really this isn't this isn't for me. You can still appreciate the other stuff, but but that's that's really your bread and butter when it comes to movies. But this movie is so big, it's so epic. There's like huge sequences of these massive war machine cars driving through the desert all done practically by the way right uh which is awesome uh, but i mean essentially the plot is we're gonna drive to this place um turns out that it, what we were looking for isn't here we're gonna turn around and drive all the way back and that's basically <laughs> the plot of the movie it's it's not a movie that was gonna blow your pants off with like a crazy plot or story or some crazy plot twist but what it has is Technically speaking, it is flawless. The editing is awesome. The sound is awesome. The makeup and the effects and the way that they built these giant rigs that actually drove, like those cars, they actually built all of those huh. to drive. Um, the stunts, it's, oh man, it is technically such an awesome movie. And it's, it's a big it's just big, and I, that's, <laughs> that does it for me. You nailed it. It's <laughs> <laughs> like I do, I do enjoy this movie. I think it is one of the best quote-unquote popcorn movies ever, but for me, I hate to say that's all it is, but yeah, that, that's why, I mean, I didn't even have it in my top 10 of the year that year. Yeah. But because of exactly what you said, I, I tend to navigate towards... So here's a great example. Back in 2000, I wanted Almost Famous to beat Gladiator for Best Picture. Okay. Because for me, even though Almost Famous has way lower production values, even some of the acting is not that great. But yeah. I connected with the story and the narrative. And that, it gives more of that boyhood type movie where it's kind sure. of just that versus I liked Gladiator but have flaws when it comes to the plotting and the script. So yeah, same thing here with Mad Max. It's kind yes. of cliche. Yeah. Yeah. So when you look at Mad Max, yes, visually it is so immersive and so special and original. And I wonder, and it's interesting that, you know, George Miller kind of has a follow-up to his Mad Max role, but it's, it really, it works obviously totally as a standalone. I'm not super yeah. familiar with the old ones. No, but again, like you said, I could take or leave the story. And I, I guess, why can't we have both? Like, Everything you're saying to me can push, can be a great tiebreaker and can push a movie <laughs> over the edge. But if I don't have, I don't, I mean, what, why is, why is Tom Hardy even in this movie? <laughs> well, and that's, see, that's, that's another thing. That's, uh, so I have in my notes here, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, it's kind of like an undercover, like Furiosa feminist movie. Absolutely. That they just, that they just put Mad Max in to say, hey, Mad Max is in this movie. This is a Mad Max movie. When it's not. It's not. It's a Furiosa movie. Right. And I guess, and it, is he literally supposed to be Mel Gibson's character from the old movies? I I don't know. It's not clear. I mean, it's not like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I honestly, I have no idea. Um, I, I've seen the, I think the first two. Is there more than two? Before there's, this, there's so like, the no, yeah, there's, there's, I thought there was at least three. Okay, so I've, I think I've seen the first two, but it's been, I've only seen each one of them once, and it was years ago. But this, I, you know, like you said, this really doesn't need those, it doesn't have to, like, stand on them. You don't have to have watched them to appreciate this. But, yeah, man, I love this movie. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's definitely worth watching, and it's definitely rewatchable. And... So the Oscars, I think, kind of tell the exact story of what we were just talking about. So it's all the technical it got, nominations, right? It, yeah. It, so it got nominated for a bunch of stuff. It got nominated for Best Picture and nominated for Best Director. Um, it Best Picture Spotlight won that year, which, yeah, yeah. sure, like I, I can see that. And then uh, Best Director um, Alejandro G. Inarritu won for The Revenant, mm. um, which again, yeah, I can see that too. Um, but it's wins. For best editing, best production design, best costume design, best makeup, best sound mixing, best sound editing. Like, almost all of the technical awards that won that year. Right. Most ever wins for an Australian film, actually. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that one. 
I don't know. And it's kind of, it's almost a miracle that the movie was made at all because it was in production hell since like the late 90s. Like it was almost right. 20 years that George Miller had been working on that, you know, like trying to get this movie made and made the way that he wanted it. Um, and it just, it took that long uh, for everything to kind of fall into place for him to be able to make it. Yeah. And props to him for, because how old is he? And then, especially when he, Born in 45, so he's... He is 75 years old. Yeah, he's 75 years old. So he would have been 70 when he did this movie. That's yeah, impre- that's so impressive. not young. <laughs> I was going to look up, see if we could figure out if uh, Tom Hardy's character is... So he's credited as Mac Rockentansky. Mac, Max Rockentansky. Yeah, that's... that's That is Mel Gibson's character? That's Mel Gibson's character, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, so it is the same. It's supposed to be the same guy. Okay. Like I said, I don't have too much more to add. You basically nailed my own opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's actually take a break there and wrap up this episode. We've got through our six through ten movies of the decade. And we'll be back soon with our top five movies of the decade. Catch you later. (laughs) 